This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. We're here to talk with you again about a sexual topic. This is Let's Talk About Sex. And today we're going to be talking about trauma and specifically how trauma Traumatic events, which are uh, overwhelming events for individuals that are frightening and scary, how they affect our sexuality in the many ways this happens. And I, I'm looking forward to this today, Jen, because uh, I enjoy talking about, you know, really treatment options with respect to the work we do. And I'm hopeful that we'll be able to help our listener really hear these options that are available with respect to trauma. Yeah, I'm excited to be here with you, Lynn. I mean, I'm, it's always fun to talk with you about these different topics. I think today's topic in particular is crucial because there are so many clients that we work with. And I think a lot of people in the general population are not aware of how trauma affects the sexual realm, as well as not it not having to just be sexual trauma, but really all kinds of trauma affect the sexual realm because it affects our identity. Exactly. And we're going to be discussing a few cases this morning, both children and adults and in trauma that's both sexual and then non-sexual trauma, but both really have an impact on, on sexuality. But maybe to begin with the definition of trauma, and trauma is really a frightening and scary event that overwhelms uh, an individual's uh, coping strategies. And if they stay in a kind of overwhelmed state, it can uh, impact on many, many different aspects of a person's uh, functioning and result in post-traumatic stress disorder. That happens maybe anywhere from about 5 to 25% of all individuals who experience a trauma such as these. And uh, we're going to be talking about different types of trauma. Uh, the little boy I'm going to be talking about was bitten by a dog. And you're going to talk about a woman patient who had a sexual trauma and the difference really between the two. Yeah. So maybe we can start there, you know, with with the case that you're talking about, because I think through talking about the case, we can kind of expand upon the ideas that we have to share. This is a, a young boy. He was uh, about 12 years old that we're going to begin talking about. It was here in California, but could have been anywhere throughout the world. Yeah. And he was walking home one night after having done homework with a friend. And uh, he was attacked and bitten, really, and pinned down wow. by a very, very large dog. Yeah. And uh, eventually people came to help him mm -hmm. and were able to pull the dog off of him. He had... Uh, 
you know, some physical injuries, some bites that affected his body. But, uh, you know, no part of his body was amputated or lost. There wasn't that degree of physical injury. Okay. But the uh, emotional response was very, very significant for this boy. And he just experienced terror. He felt that he was going to die. At this moment, and this is one of the criteria that we have for post-traumatic stress disorder is really that you feel overwhelming terror or that you're going to die. And he felt that this would occur. Yeah. And it was also the juxtaposition. You know, he was walking in his neighborhood. He felt safe. Uh, he had just been doing a very good thing, homework at least, uh, something we expect our kids to do and really work with. And then he was overwhelmed, really, with this traumatic event. So he wasn't in a heightened state of awareness mm-hmm. when this really happened. And his coping strategies were really not on full alert. Yeah. So I think that's an important thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that does bring up an important part. I think it's interesting that something... That seems so minor to some people. You know, I, I don't think people understand the severity of dog bites and how it impacts a person. I hear a lot of people on the other side saying kind of like, well, it's just a dog bite. You know, what's the big deal? But then you talk to somebody who's been through that. And I have a lot of clients who, you know, maybe don't come in for that right away, but they'll talk about, you know, when I was young, I got bitten by a dog and it, it changed me in these ways. And it, it's just fascinating. Well, a lot of people develop specific fears. You know, they'll have a dog phobia. It might extend to other animals. They won't want to go out at night, maybe, around these events. With this particular boy, and maybe we call him Raph or something, Raphael, and uh, he, uh, his coping strategy was that, that he wasn't going to go out at night. He was going to stay home, you know, and all of that, that kind of counter the avoidance response. That's part, again, of post-traumatic stress disorder, but it is a common response to trauma. You know, my coping strategies weren't working. I was overwhelmed. Well, now I'm really going to put them up high and protect myself, and I'll just stay in my room with my little computer and not do anything. And this was a boy who'd been very social. He'd been out in games, doing sports with friends. So that was a dramatic shift. But today, you know, we're talking a little bit about a sexual response. Being at the age of 12, you know, he was beginning to have his first erection, sexual development, you know, masturbation episodes. He was really excited about all of this. Yeah. You know, so this is a really important time, I think, for boys. And I work a lot with teenage boys and it's a big thing in their lives. And it's something that's not talked about a lot, except maybe with friends. Right. But I think as you get to be an older woman therapist, they do talk with you about this. They think, oh, this is just an old woman. She wouldn't Ah. think this way about it. And, uh, you know, we're an older woman. And, um, but with this boy, he began to talk about how he was scared uh, about his sexuality. Mm-hmm. And he felt as if the dog had really overwhelmed him. There was the aspect that the dog was like a massive, overwhelming person on top of him. Yeah. You know, and he spoke about that quite a bit and yeah. his fears concerning that. His response was to change, to really question his sexuality which he had not been questioning before. And one could maybe argue that he was on a path to really move in that direction and think more about being gay anyway. Right. But it was he 
really reports that it's a dramatic shift, that he had not had these responses or feelings before. Interesting. You know, so he then also began to dress differently. So he'd been very much a kind of guy's guy in flannel shirts and jeans when this occurred. And he changed and dressed in, you know, highly, very careful clothing, really altering the way he responded. Upon entering treatment, you know, he went through a period like this, you know, where he really was, uh, you know, dressed in this kind of what might be defined as more feminine style. He wore a lot of pink. He wore a lot of jewelry. He wore bracelets. You know, and this certainly we're going to talk more about this in yeah. our, our podcast. This is normal in many ways for kids today who are experimenting. Right. But this boy tied it directly to the traumatic event. Interesting. So you it know. sounds like in a way he had some more insight than maybe a lot of clients that we work with. Fortunately, his parents, I think, helped him to have therapy. Yeah. And so in the therapy, he began to see, I think, some of the links with all of this. Mm-hmm. I think that was an important part of it. I think many, many individuals have traumatic events that are not sexual Yet it affects their sexuality and they never make that link, Mm -hmm. you know, and it can be anything. Yeah. You know, and I I think for our listener to really be aware of that, that sexuality is fluid, particularly during those teen years. Yeah. And uh, traumatic events, other events change it. They impact on it greatly. Absolutely. I mean, what I take from that, too, is is this idea of, you know, when you get to it early, then you have a chance to really make those links and somebody like a therapist or like a psychiatrist who can sit down with you and help you connect those dots. Whereas what I see a lot of the time is, you know, there's this traumatic event, but people either don't know how to deal with it or parents, you know, don't see it as significant at, or maybe the child is kind of hiding some of the effects of it. And it's not until much later that they come in. And and some of what I see often, are there certain like beliefs that have been developed about how the world is and that affects kind of how they feel about their bodies, how they trust other people And you're exactly right, Jen. I always believe that trauma challenges not only our coping strategies, but our our cognitions and our beliefs about who we are and what the world is. Yeah. And uh, just recently, our diagnostic manual, DSM, added in that cognitive part of it, our thinking part, our thoughts. And our thoughts are challenged by traumatic events, the way we think the world works. So this boy felt like, He was a star athlete. He was a real boy's boy. And yet, even so, he could not defend himself, you know, when this dog was lying on top of him and and biting him, basically. And so it really resulted in, you know, a change in his behavior that was really dramatic. The interesting thing about uh, this young man, as he grew into a young man, was that he uh, eventually, you know, in terms of questioning his uh, sexuality, he decided that he was not gay. But it took some time. It took a lot of questioning, a lot of thoughts. Um, You know, with uh, that juncture, I think kids can really go any direction. You know, it's not that you want to push them a certain direction. I think that can be very, very damaging. Yeah. 
but to really open up their own ability to question it and begin a process is important. But I think it's also important to be aware of how trauma impacts on all kinds of sexual choices. Yeah. And I think, you know, we talk about this a lot, but that it's more than just the physical act of sex itself. It's really their beliefs, their sexual beliefs, their sexual identity, their beliefs. As you said, you know, he was sort of the stereotypic guy's guy, very star athlete, very stereotypically masculine, you know, and obviously being overwhelmed by this, the weight of the dog and just the experience of it shifted something for him, his beliefs about who he was as a person. A big part of the, the therapy was also talking with the parents. The dad was very upset. You know, he had uh, ultimately come to the site where the boy was being attacked. So he, he even saw the dog. Wow. You know, but uh, and had the experience of a dad seeing this happen to his son. Yeah. And his view of it, you know, was one, oh, my boy has been feminized by this attack. You know, he didn't use that word feminized because, right, you know, because right. he said, look, it's turned him into a girl. Now he's up in his room doing these things. Yeah. And that's, a, you know, a negative view that certainly, mm-hmm. you know, impacts greatly. It's sad, I think, that yeah. people respond that way. But both the parents were able to understand eventually that this had impacted on his sexuality. Mm-hmm. That his coping strategies were really overwhelmed by mm-hmm. this and that it caused him to question many things in his life. You know, as you were saying, right. you know, his sexuality, who was there to protect him, right. what uh, identity would be the best one to survive in the world, all of those things. I think that last one in particular is what I see come up a lot is the idea of now I need to survive. Right. Before I was just living my life and it was going along and, you know, there were good days, there were bad days, but now I have to survive. And people have different ways of dealing with that. You know, I have people, I've worked with a lot of women who have sort of numbed themselves. There's different metaphors. I went into a fog, you know, Mm -hmm. or I I felt like I was asleep. Um, But it's, it's this sense of it being so overwhelming that you almost have to protect yourself, which I can absolutely understand that. At the same time, the world continues on. And so it's harder for them to deal with the day to day. And it's harder to make relationships. You know, it's harder to know who to trust. Mm -hmm. It's hard to know whether to trust your own perceptions. Maybe you'd like to say a little bit about one of the, the female cases you've worked with, really women struggling after a sexual trauma. Just to finish up with our boy, you know, we've talked about legacies of trauma. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the positive legacies for this boy was he was very empathetic after the therapy. He really could empathize with others who had experienced traumatic events. One of his closest friends was a girl in high school and had a sexual trauma. And they shared stories and similarities and feelings. Um, So that was a a real bond. But I fear that if he had not had treatment, Mm -hmm. um, that he would have had dramatic questions, you know, about his sexual life, that he might have reenacted you know, sexual patterns with others. And we'll talk a little bit about how boys and men do that later. Yeah. So I had great fear for him had he not had the treatment that he so much needed. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, it's it's wonderful that he was able to build that relationship with you where he could open up and, and deal with it. And I think that you work with the parents is so vital, too, because yes, mm. something that I do as well. And I see the difference that it makes, you know, mm. to have the parents also be able to be a supportive role. Absolutely. You know, that's a big part, I think, of of any therapist uh, yeah. who's working with kids, that they have to include the parents in the equation. Yeah. So which case would you like to share? I mean, it's so hard to pick one, but I think, you know, if we're going with, with teens, since that's such a crucial kind of time area, I had a teen who was 16 and she had been through a sexual trauma as a child. It was a um, incest case. And I think that brings a lot with it because then you're dealing with a family that in a way is trying to hide things. Mm -hmm. And I think what was so major about it was that it made it very hard for her to trust anybody else. Mm -hmm. And so in a way she was very isolated in her home because she didn't feel that that was a safe environment. It was a boyfriend of the mother. It was a divorce situation. Mother had gotten this new boyfriend what made it really hard was initially the mother didn't want to believe her when the girl came out and, and talked about, you know, this happened to me, mom. How much later did she bring it up, the daughter with the uh, mother? It was, it was two years later. Okay. So she was 18 at that time. Mm -hmm. And that was part of why she felt she could tell her mom because okay. she didn't have to kind of be mm -hmm. under her roof. Because the point of disclosure, and it can all disclosure can be a progressive thing, right? But it it usually is when an individual or a child feels greater safety. Yeah, they feel that there is a listening person there available. You know, the boyfriend may or may not have been in the home still. You mm -hmm. know, but uh, and they're older. You know, she's older at this point. Really. She's older and she went away to college. And actually what helped her speak out was, you know, around that time, there was a bit more of a focus on um, sexual trauma, you know, recognizing it, coming out, the importance of being able to mm -hmm. share your story. And so by then the boyfriend was long gone, but mm -hmm. they had had a very... I don't know if damaged is the right word, but a very contentious relationship because she felt she couldn't trust her mom. Yeah. And it wasn't until she moved out of the house that she was able to sit down with mom and mom was able to sit down with her and talking about the legacy. Mom had been abused as a child as well. Mm -hmm. And so it was very hard for mom to kind of deal with everything her daughter was bringing up because mom had suppressed what her experience as a child was, you know, and so it was hard to work with them because they were both traumatized and mom hadn't done her own work. And so a big part of it was mom getting her own therapist and her being able to work with a therapist so that she could be present for her daughter. And what you bring up, I see this so often with moms and dads who uh, suffered sexual abuse and not yeah. gotten treatment is that they really are not as aware. You know, they may think they're hyper aware. Right. You know, because they've had the abuse. Some remember it, you know, they're yeah. conscious of it. But without treatment, they're really not aware of the aspects, the reactions, the reenactments 
yeah. that can occur. Mom chooses an abusive boyfriend, right? you know, and who will abuse her daughter because she really hasn't done therapeutic work to really understand what happened to her. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's a big part of it, too, is if you if you have been through your own trauma and we've talked about the statistics, you know, one in five women have had some sort of sexual assault experience. Um, it might even be rape. Is that, do you remember? Well, yes, it's very, it's rape, very high. Just sexual assault. Um, exactly. You know, roughly today in America, a quarter of all women have experienced rape. And that that's unbelievable statistic when yeah. you look at the lack of protections Right. You know, really provided and the lack of understanding of how important therapy is after that. Yeah. yeah and the rape can happen early as right. incest. Right. You know, the rape can involve penetration or not. Mm-hmm. You know, there are different aspects of rape, you know, and different types of rape. It's not all penetrative. Right. You know, and I think for people to really understand that and be aware of that. Yeah. And uh, so there's many parts that have to be talked about in a therapeutic setting. And and a lot of the work that I was doing with the daughter was kind of helping her get through the trauma, but also helping her recognize sort of that her mother had been traumatized. And so her mother wasn't able to necessarily help her in the way that she wanted at that moment. And sort of being able to wrestle with that fact, you know, my mom has been traumatized. I want her to be able to help me, but she can't really and and talking about how to help yourself, how to reach out to other people. And really a lot of it I saw was was building trust in herself again. She didn't trust her perceptions. And so it was really, well, how do you, you know, start with one friend? And you're talking about this is the daughter, the daughter. not trusting her perceptions. Right. What about the mom? Did the mom trust her perceptions? I'm curious after, because you were working with her too. Right. I mean, mom... That was a big part. Mom almost had a breakdown because Mm -hmm. she was like, my whole life or for so long, you know, I've gone through life this way. And it was because she had suppressed it. I think having Mm -hmm. it all come back up was was almost too overwhelming for her. Right. And um, and when we talk about re-triggering of trauma. Yeah. Her daughter's traumatic disclosure. Right. Really re-triggered. Yeah, it did. It brought her back to that spot. When she's a child without a lot of coping strategies. Exactly. And so I think a lot of the work with mom was helping her realize that that she's not in that same place and that she has built up different coping skills over time um, and being able to share that with her daughter, too. How old was the daughter when uh, the uh, incest occurred with the uh, step-boyfriend father slash figure? She was, I want to say it was five. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So it have been very, very early experiences that she held really inside of herself for years. Yeah. Yeah. For for years, exactly. And, you know, it it affected things. Looking back, it was very clear, this pattern. You know, she had been a very happy child, very outgoing, very social. After that, she sort of withdrew into her own world. You know, she didn't want to make friends or mom thought she didn't want to make friends, you know, um, kids don't have grades then usually, but you know, she wasn't doing as well in school. What was interesting actually though, was once she hit middle school, her grades improved and she Mm -hmm. was like a straight A student and, 
And talking with the daughter, she talked about how, well, you know, she didn't feel home was a safe environment. So school was really her way out. And so mm-hmm. her way of dealing with trauma was to become like a star student. Mm-hmm. And I, I see that sometimes. And I think that's something that people don't always recognize is that, you know, I think some people are more aware, like if there's a drastic change, you know, a student to an F student, then it's like, what's going on there? But sometimes people don't recognize that, you know, somebody who is fighting so hard to get the good grades may have some trauma. And this mother, you know, it appears that she wasn't aware of what was going on, but she had a daughter who became less able to go out and make friends and then had a dramatic downturn in grades and then slowly an upturn. So there's a lot going on with this that the mother's not really aware of. Well, I think the thing is, mother was sort of in a fog. She she wasn't yeah. able to handle the possibility that something similar to her had happened with her daughter. Mm-hmm. And so it left her unable to to see. It wasn't that she didn't see per se. It was that she overrode what she was noticing. Yeah. And this is both, uh, you know, when we think about trauma, that our thoughts are overwhelmed and our emotional coping strategies are really overwhelmed. So the mother cannot think her way through it nor emotionally feel her way to what might have happened to her daughter. Right. Because I'm sure she had some recognition years later that this boyfriend could have done these type of things. Yeah. And that was a big part was of the healing for the daughter was mom being able to, to kind of apologize and acknowledge that it did happen because for so long mom was in denial about it. Was it difficult for her to apologize? Cause so often for I mother. Think, oh, yeah. absolutely. I don't think she would have done it without, without going to her own therapist. Okay. Cause I think that's important for a listener to hear is you, you, you may be struggling you know, with trauma yourself, sexual trauma, and your parent may never have really been able to apologize to you. And I, I think that's an important part of it to hear that, yeah. that the parent recognizes they were responsible for your safety. They did not enact, you know, the assault of events, but they were responsible for your safety. And I think for the mother is is the overwhelming guilt, you know, then she starts to feel guilty because she's taken responsibility. But she doesn't know what to do with that guilt. And guilt can be paralyzing for some people. And so it was really what I saw was as mom sought her own therapist and, and had somebody to help her through this, she was more able to be measured with her daughter. Before there was a lot of fighting, there was a lot of bickering, you know, and stony silences. And it was really through, I think, being able to sort through her own experiences that she was then able to hear her daughter. And that was really powerful with the daughter because that made the daughter feel like, okay, mom is really listening. Maybe she can be different in my life. You know, a lot of time has passed. I'm 18 now. Um, But and I think you're really saying something very important to parents listening that it's important for parents to get treatment yeah. about their own traumatic events, you know, when they're in this type of situation yes. because they have to process it. And I've seen many moms, you know, of, of daughters uh, and sons who've been sexually abused 
feel very, very guilty, which is not a helpful coping response. No, it really isn't. But it's really one of looking for how can you understand your child's sexual abuse? How can you be there for them? You know, what role did you play by not providing a safe environment? You know, and how can the relationship be different? You know, the legacy that we were talking about with the boy with the bite. Exactly. What happened? What was the legacy of trauma in the girl's sexual life? What was her sexual response like? I mean, she did. She really didn't have one, to be honest. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there was a time. Let me see. Okay. So in middle school, I think she started to, you know, the way she explained it to me was that she felt inside like she was very sexual, but because she was trying to maintain this like straight A perfect girl image, she didn't feel she could be sexual at all. So I think in a way there was some of the, you know, hypersexual internal feelings, but she didn't act out on them. And that, you know, we were talking about the boy in middle school. He's 12 years old. Middle school is a time, you know, when kids have that burst of sexual feeling and it comes forward. Right. And then you see, sadly, with the girl is that it's kind of quieted again. It can't go further. And her coping strategy uh, for the traumatic event is shut it down. I can't be a sexual person. Look what happened when I was five. Exactly. You know, so the shutdown. terrifying to her. It's really, really scary. Yeah. You know, and I think so many people, victims of, of childhood sexual trauma, live with a shutdown sexual life. Yeah. You know, and I think that is to know that it can be different. Right. That therapy can really lead, you know, to a different type of event. And uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that, that their sexual lives can be enriched and wonderful. Yeah. And it takes a lot of work, you know, but I think that what people don't understand is how much it affects not just the literal sexual kind of arena, the physical sexual part, but so much of our lives, as we talk about in this podcast frequently, sexuality pervades so much of our life and I don't think they understand the little things you know I have I'm not thinking about this girl in particular but I'm just thinking about kind of the constellation of clients I've had I have clients who you know don't want to have a male teacher Mm -hmm. you know they don't want to be friends with someone who has a girlfriend or someone who has a boyfriend and they don't realize that in doing this they're they're kind of crafting this tiny box for them to live in but it's all about chasing safety and comfort. And I think instead it's about therapy helps us learn that while, yes, you want to feel comfortable sometimes through trauma, your comfort zone becomes so tiny and you have to slowly work with them to help re-expand it again. As you said, with the, with the dog bite case, you know, this social boy is now going to being in his room all the time. Obviously that's Mm -hmm. not going to help him have a budding sexual life. And what I like your metaphor really of the box that it, you know, the lack of of really coping strategies, the strategies are all about defense and protection and making your life one surviving your life, really not living your life. And that's what trauma does. It leaves you in that stance. You're in that moment for a very, very long time. So then how to open up and sexuality 
mm-hmm. requires a certain degree of openness and, and, and risk. you know, and risk. You have to take risk. And that's a very big thing. You know, maybe before we close to talk a little bit, I think about, uh, you know, we've talked about two young people. Right. Um, but there is a further legacy of trauma and it goes on throughout our lives, really yeah. sexual trauma. And I've really been able to uh, explore that in a sad way with probably I've treated maybe more than a hundred boys and men who've been abused by a Catholic priest. Yeah. And this in many ways was traumatic for me, uh, of Catholic background, French Canadian Catholic background. And to right. see that happen, you know, and to be involved in that process is life changing really in many ways. It makes you into an activist to change it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it also in dealing with the individual men, I've had the opportunity to really look at different sexual manifestations and maybe just to talk about two of them that are frequently seen. Sure. Many times the men will uh, cut down their sexual life completely in the way you mm-hmm. describe with uh, your girl patient. Yeah. That they build a box. They're not sexual. They're not. They're avoidant. They're really closed off. And they don't want to do really to others what has been done to them. But it cuts a great, great part of their sexual life out. Well, of their life. Of their life, exactly. And it doesn't just stay in the sexual realm. Their work is affected. You know, their relationships are affected. Many have questions about having children at all. Yeah. You know, because will they abuse their children? You know, it's a real concern. And I think to say when you're abused by a man and you are a boy, you know, you do recognize that there is the possibility of that occurring. And many of these boys ask that question. Yeah. You know, one of the studies I did actually showed that there isn't a higher risk. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But it's important, I think, for people to know that uh, abused men and boys are asking that question. Will I abuse others? Right. You know, and I think that's a very, very key issue. The other thing that I have seen, there is a small percentage who do abuse others. And, you know, we talk about it as a reenactment of the trauma. Mm -hmm. They may abuse a sibling after they've been abused as, say, you know, a young boy or a teenager. Right. They may abuse a neighborhood child. You know, they may then abuse even their partner or more specifically, I see a lot of men who've been abused, you know, going out and seeking out prostitutes and reenacting the abuse in that situation. Yeah. I've also had the, the pleasure really of working with sex workers. Yeah. And uh, many, many sex workers report that their clients demonstrate and reveal this type of activity. Um, And they won't talk much about the trauma, but at least they do open up a little bit to certain sex workers who I think are closer to therapists than we want to think. They listen to a lot of these things and they They experience a lot of these things. So I think being aware of that part of life, and these are individuals who have not had treatment or, or who came late to treatment. Right. And then already have established this sexual pattern in their life that I'm familiar with. Uh, but I think treatment can help. Um, you know, a man that I've uh, worked with for a number of years has really had this difficulty in some ways. Yeah. And, um, you know, you can't change that pattern necessarily, but you can work out where it might be 
a safe pattern for an individual where you could share some of the feelings with a partner if you have them, where you could open up to others. So there's much that can be done to impact on this even later in life. So therapy can make a difference with sexual trauma, even at a later later. stage. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I think this is a very, very sad area to be aware of. But I think many of us know individuals who have suffered sexual trauma and have really not gotten the treatment that they need. Yeah. I mean, I think there's still a lot of shame around it. It's hard to accept. I think also because, as you said, there are different ways of dealing with it. I mean, one that we haven't even touched upon and we could probably do like a whole other (laughs) podcast on is really the way drugs and alcohol kind of play into people's coping strategies. I mean, when kids are younger, maybe they don't have access, but I see a lot of young teens who who find access and instead of, you know, being able to get treatment for therapy to deal with the trauma, they'll they'll drink themselves into a stupor or, you know, seek out drugs or this is, was a, the largest finding in the study I did of, of men and boys abused by priests was the response in turning to substances. Yeah. And uh, they turned to substances really to forget mm-hmm. the intrusive memories and reenactments that were ongoing yeah. um, when they were actually having sexual activity. You know, the memories would flood back in. And so there were, you know, there's coping strategies that are there and come up at certain points, I think, to be aware of. And substances are that. They provide a coping strategy, really, for people who have suffered very severe trauma. There are other things, too. There are other skills, but I think it's it's often it's easily accessible. Yeah. In some ways, it's it's a little more socially accepted and... You know, we still live in a world where, particularly for a lot of men, they aren't allowed to express themselves. They don't feel they either have the skills to kind of sit down and talk about it, or maybe they just, you know, have different beliefs that keep them from even seeking treatment. Right. And, you know, many of the men that I've worked with, they would even come in drunk or after using substances to talk about it. Yeah. uh, Because that was the only way. Yeah, they could feel, you know, a little bit protected to bring up this very sensitive subject. Yeah. What I saw a lot of the time is that when I would start talking about it with the male client is that there's a lot of anger there, a lot of anger. But once you sit with them through the anger and let them be angry, there's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of vulnerability there. And I think a lot of the other outside things can push people away, but being able to sit down and and let them have that, they feel safe and they open up and you see that it's it's so much of that fear and sadness. And what you're bringing up with the anger, I think is important to be aware of. Anger is a very common symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder in men. Yes, And so I think to be aware of that, it certainly was with the men abused by priests. Um, Also, I've done some work in the prisons and juvenile detention facilities, and uh, many individuals uh, in juvenile detention and prisons have suffered serious trauma. They are in need of therapy to address this. And without that type of treatment, reenactments occur. 
yeah. you know, that are very dangerous for that individual and others. And so I think to be aware of that, our prisons are now the largest psychiatric treaters in America, and they are treating trauma, yeah. you know, in the way that we're talking about it. So I think it's very, very important to be aware of this. So it brings us back to uh, our own offices and the work that we do. Uh, you know, I admire you, Jen, for doing this. Uh, you know, it's uh, the only thing I'd say to maybe close our podcast is trauma has a legacy for the treater. And I believe that we all have a trauma load mm-hmm. um, that we carry with us. And we have to take care of ourselves, really, in doing this work, too, because we are traumatized by hearing these stories and working with these patients. and. We suffer uh, with them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thank you, Jen. Come on.